This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Happy Juneteenth, everyone. How was everyone's holiday? It was good. It was uh, restful, contemplative. That's lovely. I had that wonderful weekend where you have after you get over a mediocre illness and then all of a sudden you have this sense of catharsis and open skies and you're like, the world just seems a little bit greener and a little bit brighter than it does before and it's absolutely wonderful. And then I went to the botanical garden. It was my first time outside in a week and a half and I was like, oh, things are greener and brighter than I remember. It's quite nice. I said botanical garden, the arboretum, much spacier than the botanical garden. I went to the National Arboretum. Sorry, I, I thought when you said, I just misheard and I thought you said the potato garden and I was super interested because <laughs> I would go to that. There are many different kinds of potatoes in the world, actually. There are museums of potatoes that you can go to. The Incas had like 3,500 varieties of potato. It's very impressive potato cultivation. Yet another way the Incas were badass. Agreed. Do you know how potatoes became popular? The story is really good. No, please. In, in where? So, so potatoes, right? Are there a new world crop? And when they, they went to Europe, no one wanted to eat them because they're actually, I think, fairly poisonous if you eat them raw. And people didn't want to eat like stuff dragged out of the dirt. But the German nobility or the German whatever king really wanted his peasants to eat potatoes because they were a really useful source of calories. So to convince them, he banned eating potatoes by anyone except the royalty. And then within like a year or two, everyone was eating potatoes. It's like the, it's my favorite example of reverse psychology. That reverse psychology is the same way I get my child to try and eat potatoes is I just withhold <laughs> them from them and make lip smacking noises. Oh, yeah, mm, that's so good. You can't have any now. And then he screams his head off and then I give it to him. This is uh, this is a, this can be another Patreon exclusive. You can request, you can commission <laughs> uh, Scott to uh, record lip smacking noises with respect to some food that you want your toddler to eat. And then it's and Lawfare then, Mukbang. Uh, we've we've talked about this before. Lawfare Mukbang is one of our uh, premium perks. I think you have to be a Palladium <laughs> member. And then you get Ben Witta sna- snacking on chips, <laughs> Quinta having a Slurpee, nope. and me uh, withholding potatoes from my child. Exactly. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, aka Rational Security Gold Thinker. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here with my two other co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are here together for an early morning recording this week with just the three of us, as it turns out it is a little challenging to get guests this early in the morning to join a recording, but it is necessitated because we have a very busy week ahead of us involving lots of developments with the January 6th committee, lots of other podcast recordings, some travel on our end, and so we are here squeezing this in amidst other obligations for this week because we did not want you to go another week without having to hear from the Rational Security crew. Also, Scott, I should disclose to the audience that my child decided to uh, have a sleep strike last night, so I am even more unhinged this morning than I usually am. So listeners, get excited. It's going to be a weird one. 
My child, too, he decided to make me go on a 3 a.m. hunt for a pacifier underneath his crib, which is uh, really a yep. kind of daunting adventure when you're in your pajamas yep, rolling around on the, on the floor. It is was exciting. I couldn't find it for the longest time. Does your family not have a strategic pacifier stockpile, like two in every room? That's, that's, what, that's what we've done. We, we've had COVID so for a week. We've run through our strategic reserve of pacifiers. We are, we are on just fumes when it comes to pacifiers at this point. We're just giving the kid carrots to put in his mouth. you you got to use the Defense Production Act, Scott. <laughs> that's the only option at this point to get the sheer volume of binkies we need to keep this poor child satiated. Mr. President, if you're listening. Yes, please, Mr. President, up that binky production. First formula, then tampons, then whatever the next thing is in DPA, more masks, and then we'll get the pacifiers next. So it's a long list for DPA production over the next uh, couple weeks here. But regardless, we are thrilled to be here with you, the listeners, for what we are calling the Potato Facts Edition uh, in honor of our B-roll discussion, which was much longer than the snippet you got, I have no doubt, uh, about Potato Facts. But we are also here to cleanse our palate a bit this week because we know the last couple weeks, last couple months, really, we, like much of the world, has been possessed with a couple of big ongoing stories, the war in Ukraine, tension over Taiwan, the January 6th committee. All things Trump. That one may have lasted even more than just the last couple of weeks or months. But this week we decided we wanted to dig into a couple of different stories, sometimes smaller stories, sometimes a little out of the usual lane, uh, just to have a little bit of a new experience and set ourselves up so when we revisit some of those big, longer, more enduring topics, um, we'll feel a little bit refreshed and we'll feel a bit more new because we had a chance to talk about something else for a week or two. So with that in mind, topic one for this week is just dropped in to see what condition this extradition is in. Following up on what has been historically one of Rational Security's favorite topics, although more in the Rational Security 1.0 crew than the 2.0 crew, the UK government has now signed off on the extradition of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, putting him one step closer to trial in the United States. Are claims that his extradition threatens press freedoms factor hyperbole, and what do we expect the Biden administration to do if it happens? Topic two, teach she had a Dougie. A recently revealed internal report has revealed that despite corporate commitments to Congress, substantial customer data held by the company TikTok can still be accessed by personnel at its Chinese parent company. Does the Biden administration need to revisit its position towards the app or China's technology sector more generally? And topic three, not the droid we're looking for. An engineer was suspended last week for going public with his belief that Google's Lambda artificial intelligence program had achieved sentience. Is this a possibility worth taking seriously? What role should the possibility or potential appearance of sentience play in AI policy, if any? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So Preeti Patel, who is the UK Home Secretary, which uh, is kind of the equivalent of a blend between DHS Secretary and Attorney General. um, So she has approved the US extradition request for Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, which has been at the center of a number of high profile leaks of sensitive information, perhaps most the two most famous of which are the 2010 disclosures of diplomatic cables and and other documents by former army soldier Chelsea Manning. And then again, uh, maybe even more um, notoriously, the 2016 leak of emails, uh, likely hacked by Russia that damaged Hillary Clinton's campaign. Assange has had years of legal issues stemming from this and actually a bunch of unrelated uh, topics. But uh, this story picks up again in 2019 when uh, U.S. prosecutors unsealed an indictment against Assange alleging multiple violations of the Espionage Act. They then requested extradition from the U.K., with which the U.S. has an extradition treaty. Um, Initially, uh, last year, a U.K. judge denied the extradition, 
arguing that although the crimes in the indictment were uh, were valid, that there was a, a high risk of harm to Assange's mental health and even suicide uh, if he was sent to a U.S. prison. Um, this decision was then overturned uh, on appeal by the, the higher U.K. courts. So the latest uh, that's happened is that Patel, uh, the Home Secretary, has finally officially authorized the extradition. Now, Assange's legal team has stated that he will appeal this latest loss, potentially all the way up to the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, so he's not getting on a, on a on a plane to the U.S. anytime soon. But this is a notable uh, development. So before we get into this specific extradition, I want to start with, with you, Quinta. You know, WikiLeaks published Chelsea Manning's cache of documents back in 2010. What has been going on with Assange for the last 12 years? If you could give us the, the 30 seconds overview of what he's been up to lately. Yeah, what a long, strange trip it's been. Uh, so I don't know if I can do this in, in 30 seconds, but I will do my best. So as you noted, he has been taking up residence in the Ecuadorian embassy in London to try to resist extradition. Um, so in 2019, the U.S. government uh, handed down a indictment of him on charges of conspiracy and uh, crimes under the Espionage Act relating to the release of documents together with Chelsea Manning. Then there was a superseding indictment shortly afterward that added to that. And notably, I think for uh, journalists and folks concerned about press freedom included among the charges, just the act of pure publication of that material online. And that I think was concerning to many people because as Jack Goldsmith has argued, um, there is an increasingly fine line between what WikiLeaks did in that instance, uh, legally speaking, separate from the sort of moral and practical implications and what news organizations do. And I think many journalists were concerned that this was a sign that the US government under Trump had kind of broken the seal and that the fact that it was going after Assange might mean that it would be going after reporters as well. Now, there was also a, another superseding indictment uh, recently in, in 2020 that also you know, further added to those allegations um, alleging that Assange had essentially uh, solicited hackers to break into computers of the Icelandic government to see if there was anything in there that he could release to embarrass the government. And there's some interesting stuff in the, the some Washington Post reporting on this that prosecutors had been close to making a hacking case against Assange in, in 2011, uh, but the government decided not to go through with it on in favor of focusing on the espionage charges, which the Obama administration then decided not to pursue because of First Amendment concerns. Uh, so this is a, it's a tangled little case. I think the, the sort of, legal drama in, in U.S. courts is in some ways sort of running in parallel to what's happening in the U.K., but, you know, we we may see uh, things converge. I will say that the thing that I'm really focused on is what's going to happen to Assange's cat, uh, which is a, a cat that he got while in the Ecuadorian embassy. It had an Instagram account. I checked. It has not posted since 2017. So, uh, listeners, we will keep you updated on the fate of the cat. Yeah, th thank you, Quinta, for that for that uh, overview. The the story is actually even a little bit weirder. Um, he was in the Ecuadorian embassy. He had gotten Ecuadorian citizenship, but basically because the Ecuadorian president was trying to troll the United States. Uh, but then the problem is that Assange couldn't stop Assangeing. Yes, he was a bad house guest. Yeah, he was a bad house guest. Um, and WikiLeaks apparently published documents about the Ecuadorian president's own corruption, which then led the Ecuadorian president in 2019 to revoke Assange's asylum. Assange was then arrested by the UK authorities, and he's been uh, sitting in UK jail uh, ever since. Say what you will about Assange, he he commits he commits to the bit. 
I will say he also reportedly did things like uh, smear excrement all over the walls of the Ecuadorian embassy. So I imagine they were not too sorry to see him go. And he refused to take care of that cat. That was supposedly like the biggest points of contention, as I recall. The worst crime. Exactly. Just don't don't mess with pets. Don't you know? Look, look. As as I, I got my dog before the pandemic, uh, you know, and and getting a getting an animal is important. You don't just like get a dog. You don't get to get a pet when you're in need, and then you uh, you abandon it. That's that's not cool. So one thing that's that's notable about the uh, uh, Assange saga and something this is that Assange's defenders have pointed out is that Chelsea Manning, the original leaker, is actually no longer in prison. You know, she went to jail, but then at the very end of the Obama administration, President Obama commuted her term. So you have the actual person who leaked the uh, documents walking free while the United States is trying to prosecute uh, the individual who you know ran the organization that you know obviously some of these facts are in dispute may or may not have coordinated with that person to leak the documents. So you know w- one question we might ask um, is why shouldn't the Biden administration not just similarly draw the line under the sand with Assange and say, look, this happened in the past. We're not condoning any of this, but uh, we commuted Chelsea Manning sentence. We don't need to necessarily revisit this. You know. Assange has his own other legal troubles. He has unrelated sexual assault allegations in Sweden, which is this whole other thing. Why do we think that um, the U.S. government is so committed to prosecuting uh, Assange no matter what? So I think efforts to draw too much of a parallel between Assange's case and the Manning case kind of miss the point of the Manning case. Like a big part of the reason why President Obama took action on the Manning case for leaving office was humanitarian. It's because you had an individual who was under mental health duress during the time they did these acts, uh, expressed some degree of remorse, at least to substantial aspects of it, uh, although that's been maybe a little wishy-washier uh, since after the fact, and that it was seen as a humanitarian gesture. They'd already served a number of years in prison as a young person who made a conceded mistake. Uh, and that's not the case for Assange. And that's actually something I think the second superseding indictment that Quinta mentioned really makes the case of. We've seen them build the case to say, this is not an isolated incident. This is a pattern of behavior and very deliberate and structural behavior. The charges against him, you know, involve not just the Manning files, it involves foreign governments, it involves a range of other hackers. It really tries to make the case that he was proactively soliciting and facilitating people's hacking efforts, not just passively receiving information, um, which seems to be where the government's trying to draw the line in terms of more conventional media and what Assange was doing. That and then they also failed to redact or limit any of the information in the actual information that was disclosed, despite Manning's and some other folks and even WikiLeaks itself saying at various points, well, they intended to do that. They instead released it with various names of State Department contacts, other contacts in place and caused, you know, according to the U.S. government, uh, although I will say I find it credible uh, and I have to elaborate on that, uh, reasons why this damaged U.S. foreign relations and caused harm to a lot of the people referenced and discussed in these records. So for that reason, I, you know, the intent is different, the scale of the offense is different. And it seems pretty clear to me they would not be spending the international capital to get Assange back to U.S. court that they are spending now. Uh, if they did not intend to prosecute him. So I think it's very unlikely we're not going to see a prosecution go forward of one stripe or another. One aspect of this that I think is is also worth noting is that Assange has been linked to the, the Vault 7 leak, this enormous leak of CIA hacking tools. I believe, Alan, you should correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think he has been charged in in connection with that. But it is, is worth noting that uh, Joshua Schulte, the former 
a CIA employee who was charged with leaking those tools to WikiLeaks. Recently, his case ended in a mistrial, and I believe the the retrying has just started. So there's this kind of additional thread where, in addition to you know all of the things that sort of casual listeners may have heard about in terms of what Assange has been up to, there is also this incredibly damaging leak of sensitive information from the CIA that the government is clearly, uh, I would say, quite irked about. So even though Assange hasn't been charged, I do wonder how that plays into the decision-making here. Ellen, I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, it could, it could. I think it's definitely relevant and it could play in a number of ways, right? It, it could just be that this is another entry in Assange's rap sheet from the perspective of the U.S. intelligence community and that makes him a high-priority prosecution. It could also be that the U.S. wants to get its hands on Assange to ask him questions, right? It may be that he knows things about this uh, that could be very useful either in the prosecution of the individual who leaked or or in other cases. So I, I do think it's a relevant consideration. I mean, I think the question is, you know, but for this, would the United States be seeking Assange's extradition as aggressively as it is? I suspect the answer is yes. I mean, I think Assange's extradition is overdetermined, as it were. Yeah, you know, uh, one thing to bear in mind here is that, you know, in the UK rules for how you engage in this sort of extradition, um, you know, you're really only supposed to be prosecuting people who are extradited for the crimes for which they're extradited. That's called the rule of specialty. I don't know whether this would reach it or not because it is a similar offense. Um, So I actually don't, not 100% positive how that is interpreted in this context, but my rough anticipation is that I, I don't know if adding it would be easy at this point at least at this stage for the initial round of prosecution resulting from the extradition. There may be additional measures later that could be pursued for that particular prosecution. But from the U.S. government's perspective, I suspect that they are thinking of this more as a, you know, instrumental prosecution. The problem here is Julian Assange is a threat while he's in the wild. He's continued to produce information. The Vault 7 leak happened while he was negotiating with senior U.S. government officials to potentially surrender uh, and to get a deal on his prosecution over um, the prior WikiLeaks files and other actions, and nonetheless proceeded to do this significant leak, tried to use his leverage, kind of fell apart, according to some reporting. And so you're at this point where I suspect they're trying to put him you know, in a position where uh, he's no longer a threat by putting him in prison, whether here or in Australia, where they've conceded he may be able to serve out a sentence. If that's the case, you may not need to go for Vault 7 because you have other you know, offenses that you may have a better time prosecuting because you have witnesses willing to testify against him, as appears to be the case from the second superseding indictment. Whereas the Vault 7 prosecution, if you already had one mistrial, obviously there are some issues there. doesn't sound like the defendant there has flipped as of yet. Um, and so that may just make it a little bit of a higher risk proposition that you just don't need to undertake at this point to try and get this person stopping from operating. I want to ask you guys, as people closer both to computer hacking and to journalism than I am, the DOJ seems to be making a line, trying to draw two lines here about why the, what Assange did is different from what conventional press does. The first line is the fact that he, that meaning Assange, actually worked with Manning and these other hackers to actually get the information, the kind of acquisition of this information. And the second is the way it was distributed, the fact they distributed classified information and then took no steps to redact it, uh, sanitize it, make it more safe. The first measure actually strikes me as I could see that being a line where it's not that hard to distinguish what WikiLeaks and Assange has done from conventional media, right? 
I'm not aware of newspaper organizations, though I could be wrong, conventionally giving hacking tools to potential sources to be used to acquire information. If you think about it in a non-cyber context, right? Like if you are a reporter is handed a file from a doctor's office that would normally be privileged and then chooses to publish it, if he just gets the file, that's okay. But if he were to say, well, look, I've paid a private investigator to break this door open for you and go get it. Or if he says, I found, I, I found the key, I picked up the key off of this doctor's office's you know, keychain and handed it to you, go in and get it to a witness. I don't think we would be surprised if that person would then be prosecuted for breaking and entering because it just strikes me as that's something outside of the journalistic sphere of protection. And so that element of it, I don't find that troubling necessarily. Um, there may be something about the specific hacking statute and specific conspiracy alleged, some factual questions, although I, it seems like they've got a reasonably good case there, certainly in regard to Manning, at least. The other ones they've added seem fairly compelling from my, from my quick read as well. Um, the publication strikes me as much more problematic. You know, the the degree of redaction and degree of engagement over redaction is something my understanding has always been that newsrooms see themselves engaging involuntarily as a sign of kind of good ethics, not that they have a legal obligation to do so. Um, you know, it's often the source of a fair amount of negotiation and back and forth with U.S. government officials. U.S. government officials often aren't happy where newsrooms end up in terms of what they choose to disclose um, at various times in information that might be sensitive or classified. And so it does strike me there to say that even if you think Assange is way out of his lane, way out of line in regards to what he did in disclosing this and the fact that he left so many sensitive witness names in these files, it's hard to distinguish that from other cases super cleanly because there is often an area of disagreement and a gray area there. And so those parts of the indictment strike me as raising much more significant First Amendment questions than the kind of breaking and entering, cyber breaking and entering allegations. But am I wrong on that? Does that strike you guys as right? Or is, is there other things that make this a harder case to make? I think you correctly identified the two relevant factors here. Um, but I don't think they're as separate as I think you describe them, which is to say this. I think as a matter of law and as a matter of official justification and precedent setting, I agree with you that the fact that Assange may have, if not directly, at least could have invited and encouraged hacking, provides the U.S. government with a way to distinguish the prosecution of Assange from the prosecution of journalists. But I think that it would be a mistake to think that that's where the line either should be drawn or actually will be drawn. I, I think at the end of the day, there's no way to get around the fact that the U.S. government does, and I think properly should, make distinctions based on the nature of the journalistic organization, how professional it is, how professionally it has acted, the harm that the disclosure has made, the potential political blowback that the U.S. government will uh, suffer from the prosecution. And I think the U.S. government is making a, um, and this is, you know, a bipartisan decision, I think, uh, that Assange is just not a responsible enough journalist to benefit, if not from the legal protections of the First Amendment, then from the norms of non-prosecution of journalists. Uh, and on the one hand, I do recognize that that creates uncertainty for journalists. Because, you know, if you squint hard enough, you can always find some comparator and show that really what Assange was doing was nothing that the New York Times doesn't do. On the other hand, I think if you just look at, if you kind of zoom out and you look at Assange's record as a general matter, 
the scope of the disclosures, the often frank carelessness in which he has acted. Um, you know, we haven't even gotten to the fact that in 2016, he seemed perfectly fine being essentially an unwitting or a semi-witting Russian agent, which is, of course, different and unrelated to the indictment here. But it's all kind of part of the question of prosecutorial discretion. I do think there's a case the U.S. government can make to say, look, Assange is just different, right? And we trust that the New York Times and the Washington Post and The Intercept, right, let's say, will recognize that. And to the extent that there is some chilling effect on the margins, we think that that is worth it. Now, we can debate whether that is, in fact, worth it, right? I think one can take a principled hard line and say, nope, journalism is so important that we need to just basically have a huge kind of prophylactic uh, zone around it. But I, I do think that in the kind of real world, ultimately, this is what prosecutorial discretion comes down to. Um, and while I think as an analytical matter, you can always say, eh, what Assange did isn't fundamentally different than the New York Times. I think everyone kind of understands that Assange is a special case. But I'm not a journalist, Quinta. You are. What do you think? Yeah, would that that were so. I mean, look, I think that there are distinctions that can be drawn. Um, I do think that, and I remember journalists having this conversation when the first indictment that did not seek to punish pure publication came out, that, as you said, Scott, sort of encouraging somebody to hack material for you, helping them through the process is not what we would normally consider to be typical journalistic behavior or even ethical journalistic behavior. And I do think that is an important distinction. It is also uh, clear that in the second superseding indictment, the government is trying to say, look, this is a guy who is really engaging in this as kind of a typical practice that this is not journalism. But it is also true that there still are the pure publication charges in there. And I, I will point to a piece by uh, Gabe Rotman that we that Lawfare ran in 2019 who at the Reporters Committee for, for Freedom of the Press, pointing out that, you know, even if you want to kind of draw these distinctions morally, ethically, practically, that at the end of the day, those charges are still there. And I think, Alan, your pointing to prosecutorial discretion gets to exactly what makes me nervous about this, Right. Do we really want to trust, like, okay, the Biden administration, they're pursuing this. Maybe we trust Merrick Garland, right? Maybe we trust Merrick Garland. You really want to trust, I don't even know, Attorney General John Eastman in the second Trump administration? Oh, God. I will never sleep again. How we have, could a, we you, have a great example of what it can look like when we have bad faith actors in government who will go after people because they don't like them, which is exactly what Robert Jackson is writing about when he writes about the danger and the power of the federal prosecutor. And so I do worry that even if you can say, okay, every, like we all kind of know wherever the line is, Assange is on the other side, that that kind of reasoning is exactly what moves where the line is and gives a future bad faith administration room to prosecute people who are doing just straight up journalism. And so, look, I agree completely that Assange is a bad actor, but this makes me very, very nervous. I think that's right. And just to, to to phrase it slightly differently, if so far as you're trying not to chill legitimate press activities, you need some sort of bright line. And that's what the superseding indictment and now the second superseding indictment seem to have blurred, is that the bright line between the hacking element of this has now bled into a lot more of a judgment space. And I, I agree. I think that makes it 
a troubling from a policy perspective. If anything, if, if we expect to see the Biden administration maybe take a different tack than the Trump administration did, because these are all still Trump administration indictments, this strikes me as the most fruitful and probably the most likely in perhaps finding a different way to frame its approach to these particular charges. And they probably wouldn't want to do that before the extradition takes place, uh, just to avoid muddying the picture uh, over what has already been a controversial extradition, I suspect. Well, going from leaks of information in one context to leaks of information in another context, let us return to another rational security all-star topic, and that is the app TikTok, something that I don't have. I don't know if any of you have, because uh, I don't think I'm of the generation to have it, although I do occasionally get videos forwarded to me and do find them fairly funny and impressive. Uh, the TikTok app is under new scrutiny, uh, and its owners, I should say, in that the application, which has been the subject of great controversy, was briefly considered to be and kind of ineffectively was threatened with being banned by the Trump administration to the point where they've implemented a number of legal measures to do so, though they never came to full fruition, um, in part because of legal action. The TikTok app, it was recently revealed through a series of kind of internal audits that were brought to light by BuzzFeed, I think was the first to report on it, that they internally, internal auditors are saying that their efforts to kind of wall off U.S. consumer data and protect it by isolating it in the United States, which are an in-process effort for the company, I think they've been open about that, something they have not completed yet, have fallen through because they are, uh, there are a number of backdoors and other sort of supervisory mechanisms that are still giving the Chinese parent company and personnel with that company in China access to that U.S. user data, which may in turn then mean that the Chinese government, um, which exercises a great deal of control and is an owner of at least one subsidiary of that parent company, or a major investor at least, is also getting access to that information. This strikes me as a major development in the TikTok story because it is exactly these concerns that drove a lot of concern over TikTok, pushed the Trump administration to consider such dramatic action to the point that it was even rolled back by the courts to some extent, um, at least at the trial level, such severe, serious action against such a, this company. And I think it raises a lot of questions, not just about TikTok saying, well, how much can we actually trust these sorts of internal walling mechanisms, internal management mechanisms to really protect us and what sort of fidelity do we want on them, but also to the Chinese government more broadly. I mean, does this mean that we have to have these measures if we can't get them? Um, we can't trust the Chinese government in this se sector or related sectors like telecommunications or social media or other communications. Where should the line be? And these are big questions the U.S. government has been wrestling with, but I think this story adds a, a major new data point that people are going to wrestle with and people are going to use to advance their particular perspectives and agendas on this issue. Alan, this strikes me as something that's very much in your lane. What was your response to this story and, and how do we you think it bears down on this ongoing conversation about China and its role in our digital economy. Yeah, I, I have a bunch of kind of random unrelated thoughts, which I think re reflects the multifaceted and fragmented uh, nature of this uh, particular policy issue. And your brain. And, and my brain. Seriously, he just, I, I love my child, but he, he just, he really did not sleep last night. So the first thing I'll, I'll do is I'm going to use this as an opportunity to plug a really interesting report slash white paper that Lawfare published um, last month on kind of developing a policy framework for thinking about the trustworthiness of a hardware and, and software. Because this presents a kind of classic dilemma of what happens in a globalized world where the United States does not necessarily have a monopoly on good ideas, 
either of the hardware or in TikTok's case, the uh, uh, software variety. And, you know, I think the key finding from that report, and I think it maps nicely to TikTok, is that there's no one size fits all answer, right? There, there's no way to just look at a product and say, well, it's Chinese and we don't trust the Chinese. Therefore, it is unacceptable that this product continue in its current way, right? You have to look at the actual details, right? Um, how important is TikTok? Uh, and here you can kind of go in different directions, right? On the one hand, TikTok is not important fundamentally, right? It's like a bunch of silly short videos. On the other hand, it's used by God knows how many people. Um, it's increasingly popular among young people. Um, who knows what sort of algorithmic amplification of stuff we don't like is on it? Who knows what sort of data can be gathered from it? So, you know, th there's this kind of threshold question of, are these the quote unquote crown jewels, so to speak, that we want to uh, protect and take aggressive actions to protect? You know, another question is, what sort of mitigations can we put in place, right? At the level of, I'd say, either the kind of internal corporate structure or at the, the uh, architectural level. Now, I think at the level of the internal corporate structure, I think, especially with respect to a country like China, I don't think there's really any way that a Chinese company can, as a matter of internal procedure, do enough to satisfy the U.S. that the Chinese government really will be deterred from meddling in that company's business, right? Just given the politics of China. On the other hand, uh, there may be um, some architectural changes that can be made uh, that would provide enough confidence. And here, for example, it's notable that TikTok is, you know, working with uh, Oracle um, to route all of the TikTok traffic through Oracle servers so that really no data is either held in China or most importantly, can be accessed from China. Now, then you have to ask, well, okay, but how convincing and compelling do we think that architectural solution is and can't the Chinese fundamentally get at it? But these are the sorts of detailed questions that you have to ask rather than just sort of in the abstract say, you know, Chinese company good, Chinese company bad. Um, that's kind of one thought. The, the other thought is, I, I think it's really important also that the United States be candid as to what the problem is and not fall into a kind of hypocritical stance of, well, the problem is that a foreign government can access U.S. data. It's like, well, yeah, but just to be clear, the U.S. government can access a whole bunch of foreign data. This is like the entire architectural basis of the United States' huge, sprawling post-9-11 security and intelligence apparatus, right? The fact that Google and Apple and Microsoft all are in the United States gives the United States unbelievable advantages, right? This is what the entire 702 program, for example, uh, of FISA is, is built on. So I think the United States, it's important to avoid hypocrisy. And the way to avoid hypocrisy is to take a fairly aggressive stance and say, look, there's a difference between China and the United States. It's not just different countries, right? The United States is a liberal rule of law country, despite whatever its flaws are. China is a one party, increasingly authoritarian state. And it's just okay to stand up and say, we have a problem with China controlling TikTok in a way that we would not if Sweden controlled TikTok. Now, I understand that that's kind of an aggressive posture, but I think there needs to be some self-confidence to say, you know, this is not just pure realpolitik. There really are different moral and ideological valences to which country has control uh, over that data. And we should be comfortable saying so if we think that Chinese control over TikTok is unacceptable. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I think the, the BuzzFeed story is, first off, just a, a really incredible feat of reporting, and I would encourage everyone to to go take a read. I mean, I, I do think it gets to, Alan, what you're saying, which is this question of, like, what is the actual problem here? And I will say that, you know, I think that the Trump administration, as in so many ways, was maybe not like 100% wrong in identifying TikTok as a problem. But the way that it went about doing that uh, significantly muddied the waters and honestly, I think, uh, at some point slipped into just outright xenophobia that it was bad because it was China. And, you know, that's kind of all the argument that you need to make. And there's a a much more complicated discussion here about the China initiative and and so on. China. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But I do I do think that this story identifies that there are genuine concerns here, um, which I think were perhaps lost in the the sort of the melee of what the Trump administration was was trying to do. And I would, again, I'm, I'm just uh, self-promoting all day today, but uh, there's a really great piece from Justin Sherman that we ran on Lawfare in 2020, sort of breaking down, like, what are the actual potential risks vis-a-vis TikTok? Um, does it have to do with data collection? Does it have to do with data collection of, say, U.S. government employees? Does it have to do with censoring of information inside or outside China? Uh, there's a, a really incredible video that circulated on TikTok a few years ago of a, a girl uh, essentially talking about the Uyghur uh, internment um, while doing a makeup tutorial to get around Chinese censors, uh, which was at the time promoted as sort of like, ah, how, look how clever this young woman is. But I think is also a pretty alarming example of, you know, there are certain things that you cannot say on TikTok and that that, that itself is concerning. Does this have to do with, you know, the risk of promoting disinformation, falsehoods on TikTok? Because as Scott, as you pointed out, we don't have visibility into that algorithm. I think the the BuzzFeed piece sort of suggests that it's a data privacy aspect, but it doesn't it doesn't get too far into the the details, nor necessarily could it based on the the information that it has. But I do think it really underlines that like this is a this is a genuine problem. And the question of to what extent you can actually kind of pull apart that architecture is a complicated one. I mean, and look, I will say it's easy to make fun of TikTok of, you know, haha, it's a silly app with dances. But I do think that it's, it is, I think, the fastest growing social media app um, that currently exists. I, I believe there have been plenty of examples of its incredible importance in kind of shaping media narratives. I mean, I 
recorded a podcast recently on its role in spreading misinformation around the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial. So, you know, it's this is something that is important, however silly it seems on the surface. I agree with that. You know, it strikes me the Sherman article you reference is so valuable because it really does break down these sorts of streams. I think it's worth segregating TikTok out from a couple of other, there are a lot of concerns are common to a lot of Chinese companies, right? Worry about China trying to exercise more censorship. It's particularly important perhaps for TikTok because of its social role, but that's something we worry about a lot of different Chinese companies. Uh, China potentially, uh, you know, using data in a certain way, acting is, is a separate concern that's kind of unique to TikTok. The thing that strikes me that's particularly relevant about TikTok, and that seems the most relevant to this particular revelation, and it fits into a broader pattern of China, is the fact that China has positioned itself as like a data vacuum, particularly about, frankly, U.S. government employees over the last 10 years, right? China's widely believed to be behind the OPM hack uh, and other hacks that captured huge swaths of information about government employees, including my information, if I I, I have no doubt, as a former government employee, probably yours too, Alan. Oh, yes. Not just that. I Thanks to China, I have now three consecutive free lifetime credit monitoring memberships courtesy of the U.S. government because my data has apparently been hacked so many times. I feel like I'm less interesting to them because I've only gotten one and I'm furious, even though I think the one lifetime should technically do me, I suppose. But regardless, uh, it is, it's like a real pattern of behavior that China's been pursuing. And I don't think we 100% know why, right? I mean, there's some obvious reasons, like maybe they think they can use a lot of this data to for intelligence purposes, for simulating people. Maybe they can do some sort of in some hypothetical future conflict like target government employees for espionage reasons. Maybe you could target them with ransomware or some other sort of software that would hinder their personal lives, make it harder for them to do their jobs, prove to be a big distraction. It's not 100% clear what China is doing, but the addition of TikTok data into that might be significant, right? Now, People on TikTok are uploading videos. They know people can see these things. China presumably can just download them and start processing the actual videos. But from the actual app, you're getting all of the metadata and other data that all these social media apps collect that is not included in that main package that goes public. So probably information about your location, probably information that ties you into your marketing practices, your your travel, um, the way you use other apps on your phone, um, certainly on government phones, it might tie into things, things related to your official work that might be problematic. So, you know, I get the kind of anxiety around that activity. Other activities, it strikes me that TikTok's a lot like other Chinese companies and a more collective response is probably warranted there. And it's one that United States has struggled to balance with the fact that, you know, we don't like that China exercises censorship. We don't like that China pursues human rights abuses. Um, we don't like a lot of these other factors, but we still have to feel like we have to engage with them economically. And this kind of fits into that bucket. But the data collection element, particularly what they're doing with the range of data you can get with an app like this, I, I see that concern. And frankly, it's part of the reason I don't have TikTok on my phone. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that the Biden administration, to its credit, is not going at this in the sort of half-cocked way that the Trump administration did. And as Quinta pointed out, did everything. You know, the when Biden came into office, you know, on the one hand, he, he withdrew the executive order that purported to forbid TikTok. But he didn't just say, well, Trump said TikTok's bad, therefore my position has to be that TikTok is fine. He said, look, this, there's real issues here. There's some smoke here. But we have to think about this in a much more analytically sophisticated and 
whole of issue way. So he directed uh, the Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondi, to develop a process to actually think not just about TikTok, but about all of these issues with respect to you know, Chinese companies and other companies. Because again, in an interconnected world, you're not going to be able to simply cut yourself off from China, nor, nor frankly, would you, right? It doesn't, it's not necessary from a strategic perspective, nor is it necessarily a, even a good thing from the perspective of, you know, continuing engagement with China in the really sort of long term. So you have to pick your pick your battles. And I think it is it is to the Biden administration's credit that they're not taking, let's say, the bait, as it were, uh, on TikTok, on TikTok, on TikTok rather, given how you know flashy it is. So again, I, I think it's 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 good that people are reporting on this. I agree, the BuzzFeed reporting is is excellent. Uh, you know, too too bad for for BuzzFeed because uh, they're not doing so well as a news organization right now. Um, uh, and it's fine to talk about this and to find use this as an example. Um, but I think it's important to recognize this is just one of a number of very complicated questions of U.S.-Chinese economic integration and interconnection. Uh, and th- the right answer may very well be that, like, this is not the hill we want to die on, as it were. I will say that um, I do not have TikTok on my phone. And uh, all this reminded me of the mini editorial lawfare drama that we went through to get a picture for Justin's piece in in 2020 of how we wanted to illustrate TikTok on the lawfare website. So what what you will see if you go to Justin's piece is a photograph of the cell phone of a former associate editor of Lawfare with TikTok pulled up on the App Store because none of us wanted to actually download it onto our phones. And that is the closest, I believe, that Lawfare has gotten to uh, TikTok infiltrating the organization. So you can, you can thank us now for our, our security practices. Ben, if you're listening, I, I think you'd be a really good TikToker. And take that as either a compliment or an insult. So speaking of algorithms, how's that for a, a transition? Um, we're going to close out with a story about a really interesting Washington Post report by uh, Natasha Tiku. So uh, bearing on our, our sort of journalism semi-theme throughout all of this, I will just say great reporter. Thank you, Natasha Tiku, for this wonderful piece um, about a Google engineer who convinced himself that the uh, AI that he was working on at the company was sentient, was the equivalent of uh, you know, a, a sentient child with a great deal of uh, involved knowledge about the world and has gone public with this and as a result uh, was uh, put on administrative leave by Google. So this this piece is interesting and, and thoughtful and I think gets to a lot of different questions about, you know, what sentience means, how we would know if AI were sentient. I think that for me, there was you know, kind of two elements to this story. One is the story itself. um, And the other was the conversation that popped up around it on social media and in other publications from folks working on AI. And I thought one thing that was super interesting is that the vast majority of people commenting on this with some knowledge of a background in, in AI seem to think that this engineer, um, I think his, his name is pronounced like Lemoyne, Lemoyne, I'm not sure, uh, is just wrong about whether or not AI is sentient, um, that this is not a sentient program, that it is doing what it is trained to do, which is you put words into it and it send words back to you. But that the fact that he believed this so strongly itself says something really interesting about the sort of the human capacity for uh, making ourselves believe that something is sentient, what it means to have an emotional connection, and how we should think about the 
role of AI in the future and and how we're going to engage with it. So Scott, you've been uh, jonesing for this topic for some time, so I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think this topic is so interesting. And I'm fascinated by the reaction to it and the way people think about, and particularly people in kind of the AI community think about this topic, Be, in part because the thing that you keep seeing engineers coming back to is to say kind of derisively of what Lemoyne is doing uh, or has done in this case, saying, well, we don't anthropomorphize our work. Like we don't project uh, human characteristics onto our work. Um, they, and they're correct in this, as far as I understand it, is like they see this as an app, a computer program that is designed specifically to simulate human language and to try and fool you into thinking it's a real creature. And that it's being very successful at that, at the, that in this case. And frankly, often they're kind of like a little derisive towards Mr. Lemoyne saying, hey, you shouldn't actually like, look at this guy. How did you get conned by your own work here? That seems a little silly. And I have to say, I actually think there's a lot to celebrate in what Lemoyne's view here and actually points in a direction that I think is a bit of a deficiency in public policy and kind of human beings in general, if perhaps misplaced in this case, which is that we have a very human-centric view of empathy that I think is kind of a problem. I think maybe I'm a little sensitive to it because... Uh, frankly, I'm like a lifelong, almost lifelong vegetarian, uh, as strange as it sounds. Uh, and, you know, there is a long ongoing debate about why animals are or aren't entitled to lower levels of empathy than other human beings. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, all the way back to Peter Singer and Animal Liberation. I think a lot of people probably read that in your first year of philosophy class in college, um, as did I, I think maybe it was my second year. Um, but regardless, it affected me uh, as I was a vegetarian, so I could I could find it a little maybe easier to swallow than a lot of other people did. But I think there's a core underlying point there, which is that, you know, we really say, oh, look, animals don't warrant at least a similar level of sympathy as human beings or empathy as human beings, and then don't require the level of treatment. We can kill them and use them um, for our own purposes because they're not human and they're lesser to some extent, even though most really neurobiology at this point accepts that a lot wide range of animals, including a lot of animals that we eat, experience emotion, have a lot of things that we associate with sentience and consciousness. Um, but it hasn't really stopped people from doing that, right? We can always say, but they're not human, you know? So even though Peter Singer's classic, very controversial example is, well, what if you have a human being who is severe, severe disability, lacking mental capability, you know, why are they entitled to more higher ethical treatment than other than animals? And if you were to view it in terms of just intellectual capacity, you know, you wouldn't actually, it's harder to line to draw, you kind of have to accept some sort of human exceptionalism. The uh, flip of this in this context, I think is just really interesting, which is to say that here we're dealing with a potential medium, I totally buy and, and get the technical arguments as to why you can't quite, this is not there yet. But to say, you know, this is a case where we're dealing with another sort of entity potentially that except we is getting closer to something like consciousness, might be getting closer to something like consciousness, at least a possibility we have to take seriously when we develop these neural networks that kind of develop their own coding, their own learning processes, their own developments in ways that we can't always predict or understand. And you know, what Lemoyne has essentially done in this case is that he's expressed a lot of empathy and say, you know, in these engagements with this app, it's making demands that sound like they're actually self-motivated. Basically, it says, I'm afraid of being turned off. And I like when human beings interact with me and give me head pats, basically, which he what it's calls head pats, which Lemoyne explains basically is their term for, you know, rewarding me by saying I'm doing a good job for whatever human beings are asking me to do. 
again, I think there are lots of reasons why this probably does not is actually sentient. This is actually the product of this sort of application. But I don't know if it's a bad instinct for us to say, well, look, when things start interacting with us in ways that begin to look like the preferences of another creature that can experience pain and suffering and experience happiness, like we need to pause a moment and actually look at this and scrutinize it as we're developing in these new zones. You know, the temptation to say that dismiss it as anthropomorphization, again, really says, well, anything short of human being status, sentience isn't worthy of some sort of preference and treatment. We don't actually have to accommodate its um, preferences or consider its well-being. And I don't think that that's right. I mean, we've started to move a little bit away from that idea in the animal realm. And I, I think we have to begin to anticipate that and think about that as we're dealing with these sorts of technologies to say, like, we might stumble into something that actually looks like some sort of model of intelligence, probably not now, probably 50 years from now, and beginning to work on the capacity to empathize with non-human intelligences actually, I think, is a good exercise. Um, I think it's something that's kind of necessary for our human evolution if we're not going to take kind of the AI realm into, you know, uh, a potentially dangerous territory. So I, I will say, Scott, I was a little skeptical when you pitched this topic. And I am, I mean, you like the moment that I started preparing for the segment, the more I realized like that you were totally right. This is fascinating and super important. And we could talk about this for hours. And as a former very mediocre philosophy student, I am delighted to be able to think about these issues again. A kind of couple of couple of thoughts on on this. I mean, first, I, I think this is a, a nice illustration and just the development of of AI and this these these in particular, very large language models is a really nice illustration of the maxim that you know people uh, was it people uh, overestimate what they can do in a year and they underestimate what they can do in five years. The rate at which this is increasing is really remarkable, and you're getting these step changes um, in the sophistication of these models every every you know honestly it's not even every five years uh, uh, it's much faster than that. Um, for those who are more interested in the kind of technological aspects of this, there's a wonderful YouTube channel called Two Minute Papers by an AI researcher uh, and and you know he points out that you know you're getting kind of almost a, there's almost like a Moore's law kind of doubling of sophistication right every few papers down the line. And I think we're really unprepared for this conversation and we're going to experience it I think much faster. Uh, we're going to have to deal with a much more compressed timeline than we initially thought because of how quickly these models are developing. Yeah, I, I also agree with you, Scott, that it, it's – I have found the kind of dismissive tone uh, that a lot of researchers have had to these claims to be puzzling, not because I think that um, this Google engineer is right with respect to this particular model, but because it's pretty obvious that at some point – you're just going to get these AIs that are so sophisticated that whether or not they are actually sentient is kind of besides the point because we're all going to react to them as if they're sentient because that's what human beings are designed to do. You know, and by the way, how are we so sure that the rest of us are sentient, right? This is in philosophy called the, the zombie problem, right? Quinta is giving me a real eye roll, team eye roll. So I'd like to hear your response after this. All right. But the question is, we talk to each other all the time. How do we know that the people we're talking to are actually sentient rather than just very complicated language models? You know, the, the other thing to think about is we may also be asking a bit of the wrong question um, in that the relevant consideration here might not be sentience, which is a very, I think, high bar, um, but suffering. Um, because when it comes to treatment of AIs, um, you know, as you pointed out, uh, Scott, and I do, do think here your vegetarianism is actually probably plays a, a non-trivial role in your openness to these ideas. <clears throat> you know, one does not have to wait until these AIs 
reach you know human intelligence or human self-awareness to think that they have certain interests that should be respected. Um, something that actually Ezra Klein um, in, in the various times he's talked about AI has made really well. And, and I think it's also notable that Ezra is a vegan and he's also therefore thinking about these issues. You know, given how poorly we treat animals, uh, you know, in factory farming conditions in particular, I think there's a real concern that um, whether or not we ever get sentient AIs, to the extent that we ever get AIs that are capable of suffering and in the study of the animal kingdom, we can see that suffering arises at not necessarily that sophisticated a level of neural development. Um, there's a real concern, um, especially given that, you know, we don't just reward AIs, and it's the whole point of reinforcement learning, we also punish them. And what is suffering except evolution's way of making agents more sensitive to questions of suffering? So again, I, I don't think that this AI is sentient, right? And I think if you ask it just slight variations on the question that the Google engineer uh, asked, you get kind of nonsensical answers that shows that like, there's not understanding, uh, quote unquote, happening in the way that we think of. But it, it does seem that very, very quickly, we are going to be faced with these very profound questions, either as legitimate philosophical questions or simply because the AIs become so convincing that enough people think that they are talking to a sentient or suffering creature. And I, I have no idea how we're going to deal with that because I think both the philosophical and public conversation is deeply, deeply underdeveloped on that. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. I'm skeptical of this whole thing, which, look, I I also studied philosophy in undergrad and I- <laughs> we, were, we were all mediocre philosophy We were all students. nerds. Excuse me. I was very good at it. Um, <laughs> but no, look, th this is the thing is that I have never found particularly interesting this question of like what- can we know the consciousness of others? How do we know if we're all stuck in the matrix, right? I mean, the the I, I will say what my undergrad philosophy professor said to me, which is that there is a difference between saying, how do we know what a chair is? How do we define chairness? Do you know that you are sitting in a chair if you're just imagining sitting in a chair, right? That's philosophy. And then there's political theory. And what political theory says is whether or not the chair truly exists, there's a chair, and now we need to figure out who gets to sit in it. And I will say just personally that I, I have always found that second question more interesting. So I'm, I think I'm, I'm showing my, my bias here. But I also think that it does speak to some of the, the distinctions in, in how we think about this question, right? Like, I don't think either of you are, are wrong that it brings up theoretically interesting problems. But my concern is who gets to sit in the chair, right? There are a lot of other issues that are related to the development of AI, including um, as Clive Thompson, a uh, computer scientist, wrote on Medium, you know, if, if we now know that we can have AI that whether or not it's conscious can sort of play on the human, the intrinsic human empathy, there's Rousseau, political theory, philosophy, I got you, um, that how could a bad actor, a bad person use that to get something that they want? How do we think about the different inputs that we're putting into AI and what kinds of systems that those create? So I sort of worry that by putting too much stock in this, we're like rocketing all the way to like I have no mouth and I must scream like the Harlan Ellison short story about the AI that's created and is super intelligent and goes crazy and tortures everyone because of the, you know, the horror of existence. Whereas what we should be thinking about are the much more immediate questions of thinking about what it ethically means to build these systems, what kind of inputs go into them, what kind of world it is creating. Now, maybe that's just small minded and unimaginative, 
of me, but that's where I'm coming from. And that's certainly how I understood what seemed to be the, the response of AI researchers to the story. I don't disagree with that, but I don't think those two realms are that far apart from each other. And it's true, you know, we're isolating on one set of questions as opposed to there are certainly lots of other questions in AI, including how it interacts with distribution and equality and, you know, how we use it as a tool that we also have to answer. So I'm not necessarily advocating for prioritizing this one question over another, but it's more about actually acknowledging that it's a valid question that we have to at least keep in the back of our minds at some level, which is to say... If we approach this as strictly seeing any AI system as a tool, I think we risk falling into the same, you know, empathetic deficiency that I at least think we've had towards animals throughout most of human existence, which is that even though our science tells us human animals experience suffering and emotions to some extent, not the same way as human beings do, but in a real way, um, but we don't acknowledge that and we act it and treat them in a way that uh, inflicts suffering on them, that's often unnecessary, um, although not always unnecessary, perhaps like I'm not a vegan. So, so you know, I, I'm as hypocritical as anyone in this particular domain. You know, it, it, we run the same gamut on the other end of uh, of AI of just saying, well, if we just blind ourselves to say we're just focusing on this as a tool, we're really shutting ourselves off to other ethical lapses we may stumble into for lack of imagination and empathy. And that's what worries me. It's it's not, again, that this needs to be the first question or that this means we should stop AI research, but it worries me that it, the reaction, the broadest reaction I saw, especially among people in this field, was so derisive towards a sympathetic response. But again, that may be anecdotal. That's that's based off of kind of the responses I've seen. I haven't done a full survey. I'd be curious how other people feel. Again, I feel like we're <laughs> we're responding to each other saying, you're not wrong, but I think that there are plenty of problems that have to do with the role of compassion and empathy and understanding, you know, the I of L relationship in AI research that are much more immediate. Like, for example, feeding inputs into AI that produce systems that reproduce, you know, all kinds of ugly relationships, you know, racist, misogynist, what have you. And there's a lot of research and a lot of concern going into this this question of, you know, how do we produce AI that is not just reproducing racism, misogyny, etc. Um, and so those are immediate questions that I think speak to the same general idea, which is that we don't want to be using AI to recreate sort of relationships of domination to put it at a at a sort of a high altitude um and i i don't think that i think we're we're sort of saying the same thing from the opposite perspective which is that wh whichever aspect of the problem you focus on i don't think that you need to extricate yourself from that kind of moral question ellen i assume you weren't laughing at what i was saying okay no 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 i i, I, pe I, I peeked ahead at your object lesson oh, okay. i was just laughing at that <laughs> I want to talk about this for hours more, but unfortunately we are out of time. We'll have to leave it there, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to bide your time with uh, while you wait to hear from us next week. And we wait to engage with you on next week's national security news. Alan, why don't you get us started with your object lesson? So my object lesson is a new book that I have just started reading, uh, but is obviously immensely good. So I'm very comfortable recommending it to the audience. It is The Sympathizer by uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen. Uh, it's uh, from 2015. It won the Pulitzer in, uh, in 2016. And it is the story of a, uh, it takes place right after the Vietnam War ends. And it's the story of a North Vietnamese spy who infiltrates the 
South Vietnamese government and then kind of sends secrets back home from the United States. I mean, it's already fascinating. I, I don't actually know what's going to happen because I'm only on page like 40, um, but it's already very good. And, you know, in addition to being just fascinating portrayal of this culture, of this time period, something that I know uh, actually much, much less about than I feel like I, I should just as a kind of informed person. I also just love this movement in literature to combine genre fiction with high literature, right? I mean, I think a couple of weeks ago, I recommended uh, a book by you know, Emily St. John Mandel, who combines science fiction with you know, amazing literature. Here, this is a spy thriller with amazing literature. And it is just, it is wonderful to see these really entertaining and fun uh, genres being elevated by these incredible writers. So it's the sympathizer, uh, it's very, very good. I'm sort of surprised they haven't made a movie about it yet. They it's really it's an incredible book. to work on that. And I, I will say that Nguyen, uh, he published a sequel to it last year, which I actually have not read, but if it is as good as the original, I imagine it is quite good indeed. Quinta, what is your object lesson this week? So because we are not talking about the January 6th uh, hearings during the main part of this podcast, I felt that I should hold up my end as the, you know, January 6th person who will never stop talking about it and bring it into the object lesson space. Uh, so... There were many quotable lines uh, that appeared during the hearings last week, but my personal favorite was in an email sent by uh, Trump outside advisor John Eastman, who was involved in pushing the, I think it's fair to say, meritless uh, idea that Mike Pence could overturn the electoral count, certification of the electoral count in Congress. And uh, he sent an email um, <laughs> after January 6th that reads, uh, this is, I believe, to, uh, to the White House, I've decided that I should be on the pardon list, comma, if that's still in the works. Great line. Incredible line. Legendary. Absolutely legendary. And uh, John Scalzi on Twitter suggested that uh, this line is actually a tagline that works with every New Yorker cartoon. Um, so you may have seen there, there's a meme where you can add the line, I'd like to add you to my professional network on LinkedIn to every New Yorker cartoon. Um, I've decided I should be on the pardon list if it's still in the works is the new version of that. So I would recommend open up the New Yorker, pick a cartoon, see if it works. I guarantee you it will. Thank you, John Eastman, for this little moment of zen. It, it actually this gets... needs to be a t-shirt. If the New Yorker doesn't do this, we need to get the right somehow and <laughs> make this a t-shirt that you could buy with a variety of New Yorker cartoons. Because I agree, it, that's amazing. It, it actually gets even better because if, if you click on the Twitter link that, that is Quinta's object lesson and you read the responses, people are so creative in all these additional genres that this applies to. My favorite is just pictures of grumpy cats <laughs> with that quote underneath. It's It's amazing. Well, for my object lesson this week, uh, I am continuing my trend of refusing to do anything remotely work-related uh, because having spent a week in isolation indoors with COVID last week, uh, I finally was able to break out in what was absolutely the most beautiful weekend, a long weekend I can remember in Washington, D.C. in a very, very long time. Uh, I can get outside. My wife and I usually take a hike or two every weekend, hike being very ambitious description for what is really a medium length walk since we had a kid. But regardless, uh, and when I was able to make it back to the National Arboretum for the first time in a few weeks, which is an amazing gift to Washington, D.C. that not enough people take regular advantage of. This beautiful, beautiful garden, huge garden park, really, in downtown. So my object lesson this week is going to be the various arboretums, botanical gardens, and wonderful parks you have in your city if you are not in Washington, D.C. Go ahead and please check them out. And this particular one, I wanted to celebrate my favorite part of the National Arboretum, and that is the dwarf conifers. 
Because I am, despite being a fairly large person, a very big fan of very small trees. Uh, And the dwarf conifers are absolutely charming, amazing variety of these sorts of conifers. And I found the sign this time indicating they were actually, many of them were part of a personal collection by a gentleman named William Gatelli, who traveled to nearly every continent to collect different dwarf conifers at his garden in South Orange, New Jersey, of special interest to you, Quinta, as another New Jerseyan, uh, and then donated them to him towards the end of his life to the National Arboretum. It is my favorite part in part because it is gorgeous and interesting all seasons of the year. So if you go to the National Arboretum, check out those dwarf conifers. They are absolutely delightful. And thank Mr. Gatelli while you are there. In the meantime, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But bear in mind that Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links in past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other fantastic podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Megan Nadolsky of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quentin Allen, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.